Welcome to the Compounders Podcast, where we explore the anatomy of public company wealth creation stories. On this show, we invite you to be a fly on the wall for the actual conversations professional investors have with public company CEOs. I'm your host, Ben Claremont, a partner and portfolio manager at Cove Street Capital. In these conversations, I interview senior executives by posing the exact questions I ask as part of Cove Street's diligence process. Whether you are a professional investor, founder, or someone who is simply interested in business, we think this podcast has something for you. This season of Compounders, The Anatomy of a Multibagger is sponsored by Tegas. Tegas is an innovative and disruptive company that is changing the way professional investors work. For more information, please visit their site at tegas.co. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Cove Street Capital or any affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not investment advice and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending the purchase or sale of any securities. The hosts and guests may be beneficial owners of the securities discussed. You should not assume that the securities discussed are or will be profitable. My guest on the show today is Stan Bergman, the chairman and CEO of Henry Schein, a Fortune 500, $10.6 billion market cap company. Henry Schein is a global distributor of medical and dental supplies and equipment. Stan has been CEO since 1989 and actually took the company public in 1995 for a split adjusted price of $6. From a revenue base around $1 billion in 1995, the company has grown to over $12 billion today and the stock price has appreciated to over 75. And these numbers don't even include the animal health business that was spun off in 2018. That company, Covetris, currently has a $2.4 billion market cap on its own. Given Stan's long track record of success, I was looking forward to talking to Stan about the importance of dental health as a component of overall health, the company's long track record of compounding earnings per share, why the medical division has seen such rapid growth, the company's international growth strategy and associated opportunities, and Henry Schein's unique culture. As a quick disclosure, Cove Street owns Henry Schein shares. And without any further ado, here's my conversation with Henry Schein's chairman and CEO, Stan Bergman. As always, we will start the podcast at a pivotal moment in the company's history. The most memorable event in recent times was Henry Schein's decision to spin off its animal health business. So let's go back to the spring of 2018. Can you talk about the rationale for separating the animal health business from the dental and medical segments and what you hoped it would provide to shareholders? Thank you for that question, Ben. First of all, let me thank you for asking us to be on your program. It's very exciting. Uh, So the animal health spinoff had several motivations. First, to serve customers and their pets better to accelerate growth for the combined animal health company and provide enhanced focus for Henry Schein. So that was one concept. And then to unlock shareholder value for Henry Schein shareholders, as well as the new company. By bringing together the power of data analytics, as we did in the animal health uh, business, digital communications, practice management software, and supply chain expertise, all into a multi-channel platform, the combined company is focused on improving health outcomes for the benefits of pets and the owners, while driving increased demand for products and services for the benefit of veterinary officers and manufacturers. 
So on the other side, the spin-off allowed Henry Schein to show up in our focus on our market-leading dental and medical businesses as we make continued investments for future growth. We have been remain excited by the significant growth opportunities available in both the dental and medical marketplaces, such as advancing our position in the dental specialties, the dental practice management software arena, as well as increasing our market penetration of large group medical practices. So there's a lot of areas for Henry Schein to focus on in the human healthcare arena, while at the same time allowing the animal health business to grow with an independent capital base. And I'm always partial to CEOs who view themselves as portfolio managers um, and you know, don't, don't think of an asset as something that you own forever necessarily. So what do you think a capital allocation decision like the, the, the spin-off of the animal health division says about the way that you and Henry Shine's management team think about creating value for shareholders? Right. So Ben, we've been a public company since November of 1995. Henry Shine, since that time, has grown our EPS by a compounded average annual growth rate of 12%. And there have been a couple of highs and a few lows, but it's really clustered around that consistent 12% EPS growth rate. And by the way, we turn our growth into cash. This has been achieved, I think, through a strong management team that manages the details and metrics of the business. We have grown our business through both organic growth and, of course, inorganic, the acquisitions. Acquisitions need to fit our strategy, of course, and they need to achieve a good financial return on investment. This is a key area, this M&A is a key area for cap capital allocation. Coupled with stock repurchases, we think we manage our capital allocation from a strategy point really quite well, and have demonstrated a history of delivering good shareholder value. Basically, the cash that's generated from the business more or less funds the business itself. And so the additional capital we generate is used for M&A, use some debt, but not much at the moment. We'd love to be more leveraged, and that could happen over time. And we buy back stock. And another big M&A deal occurred in 2018 when you combine Henry Schein's practice management technology division with internet brands um, which owns, which is owned by a private equity company, KKR. So this is the highest margin segment within Henry Schein. So I'm curious why you thought that one plus one in this case was much larger than two. Very good question, Ben. The uh, Henry Schein One joint venture combined the assets and expertise of the leading industry innovators in software which is what Henry Schein really, our traditional software business was all about, and digital marketing, which is really what the internet brands portfolio was all about, to create a powerful new growth engine for dental offices. While we offer solutions for practices of all sizes that are specifically customized for their business, business needs, big ones, small ones, dental schools, uh, very military, we believe there is an increase in demand for cloud-based solutions. 
particularly as the mid-market and the large group practices continue to grow. In particular, internet brand, the internet brand portfolio provide new tools to help our customers increase traffic, such as patient marketing and patient communication software. With the combined entities, we believe we have attracted we have attractive recurring revenue. We have an attractive recurring revenue model for each of these solutions, which should only be enhanced with a greater degree of focus through this new joint venture, which is now three and a half years old, Henry Shine One. And under that umbrella, we were able to therefore bring together the software, practice management solutions with marketing software and capabilities. And one plus one has made more than two in this instance, while allowing us to take the cash flow we generate to support the advancement of this business into the cloud. And as shareholders, uh, it's been, I think, a little hard for us to really see the progress you've made at the Henry Shine uh, One joint venture. So maybe what are some of the benefits to Shine and things that you're building internally that might not be obvious to someone who's first approaching this company as a potential investment? Right. So uh, we're pleased, of course, with the progress we've made. And there's considerable growth opportunities going forward as well. Now, we recently reported during the third quarter of 2021, Henry Schein, that Henry Schein One was the largest contributor of sales in our technology and value-added services segment, which reported, of course, in turn, record high quarterly revenue. We saw in the software business solid growth in the North American sales area through Dentrix technology, support, which is providing technology software support to our customers. But the big one was our Dentrix has said cloud-based solution saw terrific growth. Of course, the business in Europe has been doing well and Australia, New Zealand. Uh, we had some challenges in the UK, um, which have turned around somewhat because the UK dentists are now seeing more patients again. And we continue to focus on the migration to the cloud, as I noted, and our cloud-based solutions to create flexible, scalable services to drive practice efficiency and patient engagement, and at the same time, a more stable reoccurring revenue stream. As you know, these SAS models uh, provide for terrific reoccurring revenue, and the old model of selling the software was a one-time sale, that was great. But with these SaaS models, it's the recurring revenue. And this joint venture has given us that opportunity, tremendous opportunity to drive our reoccurring revenues. So overall, sales growth has accelerated by this acquisition, internal growth. Uh, we've done quite well. Having said that, some recent acquisitions have helped us very nicely as well. Uh, this past year, we invested in a software analytics business. Uh, in particular, that business has done well. Jarvis has been well received by our customers. So we believe that all bodes well for continued growth of Henry Shine One. Of course, 
switching to the SaaS model and at the same time investing in software does uh, damper the growth, the profit growth. Having said that, it's even taking into account the profit growth, the uh, investment in the cloud and moving to a SaaS model, this business continues to show pretty good uh, growth. Of course, one has to, to, to remember that COVID had, did have a negative impact uh, in particular the second quarter of 2020. Compounders is brought to you in partnership with Tegas. We created Compounders to uncover the lessons and frameworks of the best capital compounders in the world. And if you are a professional investor, VC, or operator, and you appreciate the deep research into the businesses explored on this podcast, check out tegas.co slash compounders. With Tegas, you can learn about any company directly from former execs, current customers, and industry experts, all of which are in position to offer unique insights into company's growth, its customer value, and its competition. What makes Tegas different is that you don't have to lead your own expert calls. The platform offers instant access to the world's largest collection of investor-led call transcripts on companies such as Compounders Guests, Viasat, Element Solutions, and Avid Technology. All you have to do is log in and you'll get instant access to nearly 25,000 expert call transcripts. And the best part, the Tegas collection grows larger with each investor and company that joins. Still want to do your own expert calls? Tegas is the right solution. Experts that are just as good or better than what you'd find on other networks, but starting at just $300 per call, not the $1,000 or more others charge. If you're ready to go deeper on the next compounding business, head to tegas.co slash compounders for a free trial. I can personally say that having access to the Tegas platform and Rolodex of experts has fundamentally changed the quality of due diligence Coast Street does on both new and existing ideas. So I'd love to take a step back um, because I think people listening to this podcast might not be familiar with how important dental health is to longevity. So, can, you know, and, and before I was a shareholder in Henry Schein, I didn't think I quite understood the link between general health and dental health. So maybe could you talk about that link and why you think that presents an evergreen growth opportunity for the company? Yes. So, Ben, I think you're right. There is not a 100% clear understanding amongst the public of the importance of oral care and the direct correlation between good oral care and good health. I think people are now growingly understanding in one way that you have to eat uh, in accordance with a better diet because that's going to be good for your cardiac, uh, for your pulmonary, um, in general for the non-communicable diseases, you exercise, you, uh, say you eat well, and those non-communicable diseases will be much better, uh, uh, will face less risk to the impact of non-communicable diseases. But one of the key non-communicable diseases is, of course, oral care. Uh, a significant part of the world's population is impacted in one way or another by caries. But there are clear studies that show that there's a direct correlation, as I noted, between good oral care and good health care. The mouth is the gateway to the rest of the body. 
untreated oral infections are closely linked to a wide range of costly NCDs. And they actually, we've seen very good studies in recent times showing that good oral care reduces diabetes, reduces heart disease, impacts dementia and stroke. We've always known this relative to eating and exercising, but the public is not really aware yet of the correlation of oral care and health. Research has shown that these NCDs present a significant and unequal burden on economic and social development. Therefore, good oral care is clearly linked to better overall health, that we're trying to get that message out, and integrating oral health in primary care, in primary care healthcare, substantially reduces healthcare costs and improves population health outcomes. We increasingly see evidence of this association from major medical research, most notably Lancet, that's the major British publication, the premier medical journal in the UK, which two years ago published a special edition calling for the long overdue integration of oral health into medical health and into health in general. So yes, the public is growing, becoming growingly aware of this important link, but we have a ways to go. And that's why we're quite optimistic about the whole oral care arena. As the public becomes much more aware of this link, so people will understand it is important to visit the dentist and take care of your dental hygiene. And this company operates all around the world. I'm interested if there are any major differences in how dental health and access to dental care are treated outside the U.S. versus inside the U.S. I mean, it's a, I, I know in the U.S. it's a lot of employment-based um, access to care. How, how does that work outside the U.S. And, and what does that mean for Henry Schein? Yeah, so Ben, as, as you know, we are a strong proponent of this oral health. I've just mentioned that to you. We recognize that access to oral care and dental care coverage varies across countries. In some developed nations where, where health care is provided by national governments, we see greater access to dental care. But even there, oral health isn't as emphasized as it should be. So the, the, the difference really is based on two things. One is who pays and the second is knowledge of the importance of oral care. So uh, the general providing of oral care itself, dental care and hygiene, the technical clinical aspects are not too dissimilar around the world. Obviously where reimbursement is higher and where the population has more resources, the, the practitioner can use more sophisticated tools and equipment. But the basic knowledge about clinical delivery is more or less the same. Obviously, in the wealthier countries, there's more time to spend at dental school than in the developing world. So the knowledge base from that point of view may be impacted. But the basic drill fill is understood by healthcare practitioners around the world. And it's really a matter of reimbursement and a matter of uh, whether the uh, 
practitioner uh, is receiving the patient flow, which again is based on reimbursement, but also on the education of the public. And so given all that, what is the company's strategy generally to grow outside the U.S.? And I mean, do you specifically target countries where, you know, access to dental care is only going to grow as the population gets more wealthy and more employed and bigger companies, that, that kind of thing? I'm just trying to get a sense of what, what that strategy looks like. Well, the key metric in the decision relative to where we invest our money outside the United States is pretty similar to the US. First, we look for geographies where we believe we're underpenetrated. And by the way, there's still geographies in the US where we're underpenetrated, whether it's for GP services, for specialty services, for software. And so if you look outside the United States, there are markets that were extremely strong. Like if you look at Germany, we're very good at distribution. Camlock, our implant company, has significant market share. It's probably, uh, in, in Germany, we're probably the largest provider of units of dental implants. Uh, but then if we look at Germany in the area of, uh, say, rotary products, we're underpenetrated. Or we hardly have any presence in our software business. So we seek markets from an investment point of view where we're underpenetrated and with a particular product category, distribution, specialty, practice management, and then we seek to fill out the blanks. Obviously, those markets that are faster growing are the ones that we are attracted to uh, with more focus. Uh, and I have to say that the part of the world that is growing the fastest, where we have the least penetration today, is the developing world. We've done some good work in Brazil. Um, and if you think of China as a developing world country, our market penetration is still relatively small. So the developing world presents a huge opportunity for us uh, to fill out the blank. But I will hasten to say there are many parts of the developed world where from a geography or from a product category point of view or service point of view, we are way underpenetrated. So lots and lots of growth opportunity from a investment point of view and from an organic growth point of view. And you guys have used M&A as a lever to get into new markets. So as you think about, as you say, filling in those blanks, how much is the international strategy centered around M&A versus you know, potential green fields, like going into new products or new territories without, uh, you know, kind of an acquisition partner? Um, I, I would say that there are opportunities on both sides. So expanding our offering into international markets is an opportunity, existing offering. So uh, we will launch uh, heavily our aligner product which we already have in the United States reveal into the international markets, into something like 20 markets in the next year or two. So that's organic. At the same time, we will likely make acquisitions of businesses in different geographies uh, and 
not only for our distribution business, but also for our specialty and our software business. So it's a, a mix of both. Uh, let me hasten to add that when we go into new markets, either for distribution or for brand new markets or for specialty products, we generally do that with a local partner uh, who helps guide us through the process. And we've done very well uh, creating shareholder value through joint venture, through joint venture partners in the international market arena. I wanna pivot a little bit and talk about the medical division because one thing that surprised me most as a Henry Schein shareholder is how consistently the medical division has grown in recent years. Can you talk about the broader trends that are occurring within the U.S. healthcare market that have allowed the medical division to grow so rapidly? Well, Ben, we are very pleased with our or the performance of our medical business. And we are focused, as you know, on the office-based practitioner. That's the practitioner that operates outside of the acute care setting or the long-term care facility. We also focus on urgy centers, uh, renal dialysis centers, uh, oncology centers. Uh, we focus on workplace health. We do some work with the military outside of their hospitals. Uh, and basically the trends in the physician office, ambulatory surgical centers, another area, and alternate care markets are all positive. As there is a growing demand for healthcare in general, uh, people are taking care of themselves better, but that's coupled with more procedures that are moving outside of the hospital into these alternate care settings. And as I noted, in the ambulatory surgical area, there's many procedures and a lot of activity that took place traditionally in the acute care setting that is moving to these alternate care settings. So the market has grown, uh, but at the same time, we have grown market share. And this has been on a consistent basis. We had to transform our business because essentially 10 years ago, we were dealing with one, two, three, four practitioners in a practice. And now, for example, a big part of our business is multiple locations under common management. And that could be some of the biggest hospital groups that now own physician practices. Obviously, as you know, in the last uh, year or so, year, 18 months, uh, the business has grown due to an increase in PP&E. We think the volume will continue. The pricing may moderate, probably will. And of course, at the same time, our point of care, rapid point of care business has done very well. We've been in that business for decades, rapid point of care testing. Uh, and uh, the, the COVID-19 diagnostic test is now available in rapid point of care test uh, format. And uh, that also contributed in a significant way together with the PP&E in uh, the end of 2020 and uh, or the last couple, last three quarters, or two quarters, last two quarters of 20, and uh, likely the full year of 2021. And under the heading of trying to propel the medical division in that business even further, maybe let's talk about is is that a priority in terms of M and A? And secondly, 
is is there a big deal out there or some big deals out there that could really transform the business or would you rather focus on smaller tuck-in deals? Well, I think, you know, we generally do not go out of our space, uh, which is the office-based dental and medical practitioner, workplace health. Uh, but we did make a pretty big transformational decision. We moved into the home care arena and, and the whole goal there is to follow the patient. Our customers are now treating patients to a great extent. First, they did in the ASC Emory Surgical Center, and now it's gone to the home as well. So that, that is an area that is focus, provides focus. I don't think we will have anything major transformational. Having said that, uh, we're very comfortable with adding deals that either expand our geography and expand our product offering. And in medical, uh, there really is most of the world that's open. We, our business is very small outside of the US and we have significant uh, economies of scale and competency in the US. So we wanna expand our medical system uh, business abroad. At the same time, there are many specialty areas in the medical world, including the orthopedics area where we have virtually nothing. And we feel that through our marketing and our knowledge and uh, even our vertical integration capabilities, we can expand into uh, uh, these specialty areas in the medical world. Will a big transformational acquisition come along? It's possible. We're not counting on it. We're counting on putting 30 to 40% of our profits to work every year uh, in ways to expand our geography and ways to expand our product offering in medical, but also in dental. And ever since we've owned this stock, there's always been a boogeyman of some sort. I remember when Amazon was getting into dental supply and that was a big threat. I mean, what is the moat of this company and why has it been so hard for even a company like Amazon to be able to compete with Shine consistently? Yeah, that's a good question because I think if you're asking for the one area where we just not understood, is it's very hard to put Henry Shine into a bucket. We're not a distributor in the sense of the drug wholesalers where we buy products do the logistics and sell them. We have that. It's part of us. We're not a software company in the sense of being a specialty software company, and that's it. We're not a specialty device company, and that's it. Yes, we own many of our own brands in the implants, bone regeneration, endodontics, orthodontics, and orthopedic areas. We have an extensive line of private brand products. But those are not standalone companies either. It's the whole ecosystem of brand distribution and everything a practitioner may need, consumables, pharmaceuticals, equipment, software, the specialty products, the private brand, and almost 4,000 field sales consultants, or a little bit more than that. All of that working together presents the most unique offering of its kind. And there really 
isn't anyone that can compete with that offering. And nor is there any other company in the world that crosses borders the way we do with this offering. This is a unique moat. Yes, practically every dentist or physician likely has an account with Amazon, but they're buying their commodities there. And I think what was very clear in the COVID period is the practitioners, even on the commodities like gloves and masks, called us to seek advice. Which glove is the right one? Which mask has FDA approval? Which mask can help with COVID, deal with the COVID issues? So yes, you can get your products at a lower price on any number of platforms, but to get that advice and a one-stop shop, when your chair is, dental chair, units and light is down and you want service in two hours, you call Henry Shine. So it's this complete offering that in itself acts as a moat. But yes, we have to be highly competitive in each component of that offering, but there's no company that puts it all together the way we do. It's not fully understood by the street. We get compared with distributors. We're compared very rarely with device companies. We should, because we manufacture a lot of our own special devices. And our software business, which has enormous value, is just treated as an income stream the way and the multiple of a distributor is applied to that. So I think what is not understood is that we are today a business that is not just simply buying and selling commodities. That's our moat and it's not understood. And the, the, the one thing that I think people worried about was that as more of the commodity side gets, you know, the, the products get placed on the internet, um, then there's price, more tra price transparency. And that, of course, is going to impact margins and growth and stuff like that. So, but that, that started happening years ago. So I'm interested whether you feel like the worst of that initial wave of price compression and competition for commodities um, has happened, or is this a constant battle where there's kind of a, a, a race to the bottom going on? Yeah, I've been in Henry Schein for, uh, what, 40 plus years. I don't know, I don't recall a year where we said, wow, we don't have to be competitive this year. Every year we're on pricing uh, pressure and we just got to become more efficient. We have to provide more value to our customers. We carry all the national brands, but if the national brands are too expensive, we have our corporate brand, the largest of its kind in the marketplace, which today is no longer a white box, it's actually a brand. So. You've got to make sure that you deliver exceptional customer experience. Uh, you know, there are internet companies that did well during COVID because they had PP&E. But now people are starting to understand maybe that PP&E didn't have FDA approval. Or maybe there was a quality issue. So we're under price pressure. We've got to earn our living every day. We've got to make sure that the that we represent the best brand of products, handle them efficiently. And where price is an issue, we got to make sure that our customers understand that we offer a private brand line that is a brand and highly competitive. All of this goes into the mix. And with that mix, we've been able to generate 12% EPS growth now for 
27 years. It's over 100 quarters. And you mentioned in your response, your tenure at the company. So you've been um, in the CEO seat since the 1980s. That's an incredibly long tenure for a public company CEO. But what's really interesting to me is there are also a lot of senior people who have been at the company for decades. I'm interested in what aspects of the culture or the business have allowed you to retain people for so long. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of people that have been with us for, uh, for decades, but there's also a lot of people that are new to the company. And it's the blend of the people that have been with us for a long time and the people that bring the new ideas. The new idea people challenging the people that have been here for a long time and the people that have been here for a long time giving growth opportunities to the newer entrants with their new enthusiastic ideas. But I would say the number one reason why people stay with the company and why our stability in, in the, the earnings and the two are correlated, you have people that remain enthusiastic and have been with the company a long time. They drive this earning stability. And there's one reason why this has occurred. And that is because we have what's called our five constituents that make up the mosaic of the Henry Schein success story. Our suppliers, and we want them to view us as the best way to bring their products to market. Our customers, we want to say, you know what? Henry Schein helps me operate a more efficient practice so that I can focus on clinical care. And there's our team. This is a very unique culture. This is a culture where what counts is whether you care about the team and the customers more than anything else. We don't care about your background. We don't care about your education. Yeah, I mean, there's certain technical jobs. You can't be the chief accountant if you haven't studied accounting. But uh, the bottom line is it's a very unique culture that people enjoy working within. And it's also a culture with purpose. Come to that in a minute. And then our fifth, fourth constituency is our investors. And we've said to our investors from the day one of being a public company, you're not the most important constituent, you're one of five, but we will do all we can to provide you with a consistent growth on uh, return on your investment. And the secret source at the end of the day is our commitment to society. We are committed to the communities we're in. We're committed to the profession. There's probably not a dental association in the world where Henry Shine is not somehow connected, was known, and is similar, not quite the same on the medical side. And we will, in addition to the communities we're in and the profession we serve, we also have significant global outreach programs with uh, NGOs and on our own. And there's Shine Cares Foundation. You put all this together, it creates enormous trust. Trust enables us to drive change. And it doesn't matter which company you are, you got to be constantly changing, constantly transforming. And it's this five constituents that work together that allow us to drive the change. It's the trust we have earned that allowed us to drive the change. And that's the secret sauce. Sticking on the cultural element for a moment, um, 
you know, you mentioned caring for your customers and employees. You you mentioned, you know, kind of a more of a stakeholder capitalism view of the world versus just a shareholder focused capitalism. I'm interested in where this ethos, the caring ethos um, stems from. Is that something that's been ingrained in this company since you uh, first started? Has it evolved? Like where, where does it emanate from? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, it, it's very uh, fashionable now to talk about ESG. Uh, I don't know about the term ESG when I joined. I joined over 40 years ago. Henry Nestor and their sons were practicing ESG before the concept was coined. It's in the deeply in the DNA of the company. And, uh, you know, I've, I've been asked questions. Do investors mind the amount of time and resources that you put into uh, contributions to NGOs? And, by the, and educational institutions is probably not a dental school anywhere in the world that is not touched by Henry Schein. And uh, I would say I've never been really criticized by investors. Um, I mean, the academics have asked, not they don't ask it anymore. What, 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 is it okay? Are you wasting shareholder value to invest in these areas? And the bottom line, this has worked for us when we were a private company. And since we've been a public company, yeah, I would say in the last 30 plus years, we've codified this, this whole notion of corporate responsibility to the Henry Schein Cares Foundation. And before that, it was much more informal, but it's deep in our ethos. And if you ask people why they joined the company, why they stayed, they will refer to the culture. And when you peel the onion on the culture, it's what we call ESG today. It's the five constituents. Pivoting back towards the, the business side, one thing that I always ask myself when it comes to distributors of other companies' products is, would I rather own the distributor or the manufacturer? So what, what would you say if a potential shareholder asked you why he or she should invest in Henry Schein versus Invista or Dentsply Serona, some of the other major dental, uh, the dental players who are on the equipment side. What would you say to that? Well, I hope you invest in those companies because they provide us with our products. But I would say to you with Henry Schein, you are dealing with a company that has the close committed relationship with the ultimate customer. Uh, at the end of the day, we have a tight relationship with the Hundred with a million practices that we serve, a million and a half practitioners around the world, day in and day out. And of course, that relationship could be on the distribution side, on the software side, on the specialty product side, where we're totally vertically integrated. So with Henry Shine, you have the relationships, you get a distributor. You get a manufacturer and you get a software company all rolled into one. And I would say we've done a pretty good job explaining that to the street. But the one gap I think that we need, need to fill is that our investors don't quite understand that we're all three of those. We have all of them. Now, we are very loyal to our branded manufacturers. A huge part of our sales come from our branded manufacturers. And where our brand and manufacturers have good products, 
and work with us closely to grow our mutual market share, no issue. But where manufacturers feel that they want to go on their own, like in the specialty areas, we will do that on our own as well. So we work with the national branded manufacturers tightly, but we have taken our destiny into our own hands as it relates to specialty products. And we have excellent specialty products growing rapidly, have been growing rapidly for a long time, off a smaller base than maybe some of the traditional manufacturers, but you get all three with us, the distribution, the specialty products vertically integrated, and software, and other and a host of other value-added services, I might add, that are quite profitable, ranging from financial services to revenue cycle management to education to brokerage businesses for buying and selling practices. Anything that happens in an office-based practitioner's office, you'll see that we are somehow connected. And if we're not connected, we have it on the radar. You've mentioned a couple times how fast and the rate at which this company has compounded earnings over a long period of time. Um, but if I look at the stock chart over the last five years or so, it's been somewhat of a bumpy ride for the company. And I know, obviously, it's really hard to put COVID aside. But in general, are there any any things that you could highlight that have been holding back the company's growth or margin enhancement act initiatives recently? Um, I'd just love to hear you talk about that. Well, I think you have to take COVID out of it. And uh, generally, uh, our margins have, expand, have expanded over the years. Uh, we have, over periods, invested heavily. Right now, we happen to be investing in uh, our digital e-commerce platform both in terms of e-commerce, but also in terms of general, a general platform that provides communications for dentists, to some extent physicians, amongst all the constituents that they need to, amongst the various constituents that they have to relate to in their practice. These are requiring some investments, but uh, we'll still hopefully expand our margin, that's our strategy. But I would say that, uh, you know, other, taking COVID out of it, we were on a pretty decent roll. Uh, and I think we're back to that role now. Um, but, you know, periodically there's the rumor about Amazon or that manufacturers are going direct. There's nothing we can do about that. Look at our earnings. And as our CFO always reminds me, don't worry about the short term. In the end, the market is quite smart. Yes, I, I am a fan of the old Ben Graham quote that says, in, in the short term, the market is a voting machine, but in the long run, it's a weighing machine. That's right. Um, you got it. So, and uh, when, you know, if you look at our stock price, I think since we've been public, it's gone up by a compounded similar rate to our earnings. It's correlated. And as you step back and think about your time at the company and, and, the, and, and what you want to leave with the company when you eventually start, decide to step away from the chairman and CEO role, what do you think you want the Stan Bergman legacy to be? Okay, I don't think about that too often because I'm not thinking of leaving. But, uh, and we have a great team, by the way, amazing bench. But I think what we'd like investors and our other constituents to think about the company is, uh, and you know, associated with that, is the notion that this company 
was able to align with the needs of society and do well. I mean, we're in a big advantage in that we're in the products that really contribute to people's health. So that's pretty good. But we would like the world, we'd like all of our constituents to understand that it is possible to grow a business ethically, aligning with the needs of society and with investors, the team and customers, aligning all the constituents and actually doing well. As Ben Franklin once called it, through a philosophy of enlightened self-interest, doing well by doing good, that philosophy works. And I think that we've set a very good example. We're not the only company that's been involved for a long time in this kind of a philosophy. But I think if we have that philosophy understood by more, we'll be in a better world. We haven't really talked about corporate governance yet, and it's always a topic that, that's near and dear to my heart. So some of our other guests have said that combining the chairman and CEO role allows for things to get done without getting bogged down in committee meetings and a bunch of long debates. I, I'm interested in whether you've seen that uh, in, as your, in your experience as chairman and CEO, but what are the benefits have you seen, do you think, of, of having that the combined role as opposed to having a separate uh, chairman and CEO? Yeah, I think we'd be fine either way. Uh, the way we work is we have a group of independent directors. And those independent directors are the directors that make all the decisions. So that group meets several times a year. We have six board meetings, and that group meets for a couple of hours before or after every board meeting. And they meet with me, and they meet alone. We have a very strong lead director. I would say that lead director does, in partnership with me, everything that an independent uh, chairman of the board would do. Sets the agenda, uh, it's done collegially, and holds the management team accountable together with the board. Um, we've had our lead director has been our lead director for over a dozen years. I think he's been on our board for a little longer. He was the former chair of EY, the accounting firm. Before that, he uh, helped uh, deal with the challenges at Fannie Mae. He was on the board of General Motors during their crises and has been on a number of prestigious boards. We've, um, and I think he's as effective as a any independent chair and creates the appropriate tension and it works well i would say our board is has always been highest quality the current president of harvard was unfortunately asked to leave our board to become president the fda commissioner for president obama for eight years was on our board had to leave our board we have a former secretary of health lou sullivan who uh, served valiantly on a terrific job on our board for about a decade, but we have an 80-year retirement policy. So we have excellent board members. I think we have excellent governance. We have some insiders, managers on the board, but we have these independent meetings with me, without me, and uh, the key decisions are made in our four committees. In addition to the statutory committees, we have a strategic advisory committee 
chairman, chaired by the former chairman, uh, former president of Merck, and uh, they make all these decisions. They're the only, they're only independents on those committees. And then ultimately, uh, they report into the overall independent board members. And I think this works very well, but it works very well for us. When we first started this discussion, you mentioned that the, the spinoff of the of the animal health division allowed this company to focus more. And there was a lot of moving pieces and there's still a lot of moving pieces. What are three or four things you absolutely have to get right over the next three years or so for the stock to be a good investment for him here? Well, we have our strategy. Uh, every three years, we have a new strategic plan. By the way, we've only, every three years, we've only twice postponed that by year. Once was 2008 and the other one was for COVID. And yeah, we have to execute on that. Um, and it's, it's quite a ambitious strategic plan. But I would say if there's one area that we have to get right, which I think we will, it's maintaining this entrepreneurial culture in an environment that is very challenging. You're now in a hybrid employment field, uh, arena. You're in a talent war that's vicious. You're in an environment where us as individuals are having, and, and our customers are going through mental health challenges. We're in an environment where our customers are going through enormous pressure as a result of technological change that they have to adapt. I mean, you take dentistry, five years ago, a manual impression was okay. I suspect in three or four years from now, you will not go to a dentist that doesn't have a scanner and how that scanner ties in to the rest of the machinery in the office. This is a challenge for dentists and to get their appointments digitally. So we're in a rapidly changing environment which will put pressure on any team. For us, we need to keep our team highly engaged, highly motivated in our own entrepreneurial way with the shine values, but the culture will have to change. Just to give you a little bit of a perspective, when my partner and I, we've been partners for 44 years, joined the company, we installed the first fax machine. We're now selling 3D printing and everything that we ultimately do with our customers is gonna be in the cloud. Enormous transition. And through that transition, the culture has to change. The culture that was in Henry Schein when we started out with our fax machine is a different culture today. Working from home with new digital technology. Having said that, the values have to remain constant. And the key is to keep our values in place, our entrepreneurial culture. We do that, we'll adapt to anything and we'll continue to grow. And balancing the new with investment. It's very easy if we wanted to, to show greater EPS and probably do that for three to five years. But then what happens when you run out of uh, new infrastructure that's needed three to five years from now? So it's a balance of earnings, 
for today versus expenses for tomorrow. That was a really comprehensive an answer. Thank you for that. Um, and I think we're going to close with a question that we uh, ask all of our guests. You have discussed this a little bit. You know, I think people misunderstand that this is that Henry Chan is not a distributor. It's not a software company. It's not a manufacturer. It's kind of all of the above. But you know, may maybe anything else that you think is really underappreciated or misunderstood about this business that you want to leave people with. Um, you know, as we close out. Yeah, I would just I would say it's those issues. Uh, I don't think you know even a great digital platform that comes out is not going to knock Henry Shine out of the game. In fact, we have interests in several of these platforms and the different names. Uh, there's no anti-lock break that is going to come out and knock our implants out of business because we don't have that anti-lock break. Uh, no one's going to take away our million customers, million half practitioners overnight. And I think there are so many rumors that go around. I mean, there's a rumor, series of rumors going out that because we put in a new commissions uh, program for some of our salespeople, our U.S. domestic uh, sales, dental sales organization, we lost salespeople. And people want to sell the stock because of that. There's no one thing that could knock us out. This is, we're not a, a drug company that's reliant on two major drugs. We're highly diverse in terms of our earnings power. And I think that's not quite understood. And uh, the, you said it, the interfacing between this, the, inter the correlation between distribution, manufacturing, own brands, software is not, I believe is, is uh, not fully valued. And therein lies the opportunity to those that uh, ultimately own the stock, because I think people will understand that over time. But it's amazing, you know, people over the years have said, wow, they, they get a high multiple. I'm scared. Therefore, you know, there's something secret going on there, China, that could be knocked out very quickly. It's, there's hundreds of little interplays and thousands of interplays that make this thing successful, and they're not going to all break down on the same day. Well, I'm, I'm always partial to companies that have, um, you know, like lots of things going well and as opposed to relying on just one thing, one, as you said, one drug or one new technology. So um, we look forward to seeing what this company continues to look like over the years. Thank you so much for your time. This has been a really interesting conversation. Thanks again, Stan. Thank you, Ben. I'm quite enthusiastic about the future. That's it for our show today. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. We recognize that you have a lot of different podcast choices, and we appreciate you spending the time with us. We are continually working to make the show better, and we would love your feedback. The more candid and honest, the better. And if you have any suggestions for public company CEOs you would like to see on the podcast, please let us know. And of course, warm intros are always appreciated. Please feel free to email us at podcast at costreetcapital.com with your comments or suggestions. Thanks again, and stay tuned for the next episode of Compounders, Anatomy of a Multibagger.